where else can you go from literally off the boat in one generation with nothing? Um, my parents met in the United States. My mother was an orphan. Uh, to rise and become, you know, the president of Harvard. My first class at Harvard Business School, and the professor called on me, and I had no excuse because I obviously spoke the language, and I said, "Here," and he said, "No, Paulson, please begin." And uh, and to me, these kinds of narrative that, that scares uh, international students and make them feel uncomfortable is actually hurting the competitiveness of the country. Uh, one of the things which makes running any college or university challenging is virtually anybody who went to college thinks they can run one. So everybody has an opinion. <laughs> Sounds um, like an investment bank. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas and candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute. Today I'm speaking with two of the top leaders in higher education, Larry Bacow and Raphael Reif. Larry is president of Harvard University, where he has served since 2018. Raphael is president of MIT a position he has held since 2012. Larry and Raphael made a lot of news in early July as Harvard and MIT filed a joint lawsuit opposing a Homeland Security visa rule that would have forced foreign students to leave or face deportation if they did not attend in-person classes. It was followed quickly by a barrage of lawsuits from other universities and an avalanche of public support leading the government to rescind the rule. Larry and Raphael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. I've really appreciated the opportunity to work with each of you in the past on the important role that U.S. universities play in conducting research, which is so vital to this uh, country's competitiveness. But I want to begin with family history because I'm continually inspired, fascinated by the role that immigrants have played in this country in the past and continue to play today. And so, Raphael, I would like to begin with you. You grew up in Caracas, Venezuela. You, know, you, you didn't uh, leave Venezuela to live outside of the country until you went to uh, the United States to attend Stanford University. Tell us about that experience. What was it like to come to the United States in the 1970s? Well, I, I, I remember vividly just one is how uh, anxiety and, and excitement. I've never been outside Venezuela and uh, and here I am landing at Stanford, and quite frankly, I never, I've never seen the most beautiful campus in my life. Uh, I mean, I just where I come from, there is no such a beautiful thing. So the excitement was there, but a lot of anxiety about being in a new place with new culture and so forth. Uh, but the other part that I remember also is how hard it was. It was not not knowing English. It was pretty hard. I, I just to give you a sense of 
of how hard it was for me, and I have those memories very vivid, I couldn't understand the lectures in class. I didn't understand what the professor was saying. Partly my background was not, didn't prepare me for that, but part, partly was, mostly it was the English. And what I would do is I would write in my notebook the phonetics that I heard. I didn't understand the words. I just wrote what I heard. And then I would go to my room and, and with a dictionary, try to figure out what on earth was said in class. And I remember that towards the end of the quarter, I, I managed to get a sense of what's going on. And I wanted, I was the silent one who never said a word. So I, I wanted to be noticed. And I remember raising my hand and asking a question because I understood something. And I wanted the professor to explain it. And I asked my question, the professor looked at me and answered with a question, which I couldn't understand. So I was there standing uh, like an idiot, people looking at me and I sat down and there was nothing I could do about it. So those were my memories, anxiety, excitement, but it was pretty hard. Wow. Yeah, I, I think back to my first time, my first class at Harvard Business School and the professor called on me and I had no excuse because I obviously spoke the language and I said, here. And he said, no, Paulson, please begin. <laughs> and explain the case, which I have not read. So I, I learned a real lesson. So Larry, your parents were both immigrants. Your father was a refugee from the pogroms of Eastern Europe. Your mother was a survivor of Auschwitz. What lessons did you learn from them? Well, I think we all learn lessons from our parents, and I learned many from them. I think that their experience um, coming to this country to seek a better life, to seek freedom, to seek opportunity has always stayed with me. I feel like I've been very fortunate. I've led a charmed life. Um, where else can you go from literally off the boat in one generation with nothing? Um, my parents met in the United States. My mother was an orphan uh, to rise and become you know, the president of Harvard. Uh, so, and I think that's made me sensitive to the kinds of challenges that students encounter today. Um, it's made me, I think, concerned to, about making sure that future generations have opportunity, just as opportunity was extended to Raphael, for example, um, uh, and to me. Um, I also vividly remember my mother telling stories about how difficult it was to get out of Europe after the end of the war. Uh, she was liberated by the Russians um, from Auschwitz, um, walked back to her home 400 miles to see if anybody else survived, no one did. And then just the challenges of finding her way to the United States. And nobody made it easy back then. And in fact, to the contrary, uh, for many refugees as it is today, it was quite difficult. And, and that story has stayed with me and it's been one of the reasons why I tried to you know, advocate on behalf of the interests, as I know Raphael has, as we've done together, you know, for our doctor students, for our international students most recently, uh, for those employees that we have who are protected by temporary protection, protective status, uh, because they've, they've come here uh, to escape oppression elsewhere. Um, and also just why I think it's important that uh, we continue to try and and attract and recruit the very best and the brightest who come to this country in search of freedom and opportunity. And one of the things that, that really strikes me with so many immigrants is there's no sense of entitlement. 
they're excited about the opportunity and they don't feel that anybody owes them anything. It's really pretty remarkable. Now, most Americans have heard of Harvard and MIT. They know you guys are running elite institutions that stand for excellence. Some are becoming a bit skeptical about the Ivy Tower. What do you say to them and tell us, you know, as briefly as you can, what your two institutions mean for the United States of America and for the world? And Raphael, why don't I start with you and then we'll, we'll go to Larry. Thank you, Hank. By the way, I should have said at the very beginning that I'm, uh, Hank, I'm grateful to you and Otto, not just to be here, but with Larry, who is a person that I have admired and respected for a long, long time. Uh, what do Harvard and MIT do for the country? <laughs> well, I think, I think there are a couple of key things that, 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 are, that the country benefits from places like uh, Harvard and MIT and others like ours. Uh, first is just, of course, educating students uh, and advancing knowledge. Uh, and I think uh, those, those are things that you say like, like, uh, like, like if it was just a vanilla flavor. But quite frankly, what happens in these institutions, this is where the future of the country is created in terms of science, in terms of economics, in terms of technology. The future is created in these places, either on our campuses or for by a graduates of our campuses. So I think I, I, I'm concerned when some, some institutions or individuals are talking about, um, we don't need these kinds of institutions anymore. We can't afford them, they are too expensive. I really think the future of the nation depends on quality institutions that can advance knowledge and educate students. Great. Larry, over to you. Well, you know, uh, I would tell you, Hank, that I think the nation's research universities, not just Harvard and MIT, but all of the nation's research universities have never been more important to the country than they are right now. Now, we are dealing right now with the most challenging public health crisis that we've seen in the last hundred years. And if we are going to find our way out of this, it is because of the work that's being done on campuses of, of research universities where scientists are trying to understand the basic biology of the coronavirus, where they are developing uh, new rapid diagnostic uh, technologies, where they are developing vaccines. I mean, I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that the two first vaccines that have gone into clinical trials uh, for dealing with COVID-19 have come out of Harvard-related laboratories, laboratories with, which also have connections to MIT as well. So I think these are times when we really need institutions like ours. Um, we need them not just for the basic research that we're doing um, on, you know, in areas of science and technologies that will invent, invent new technologies, that will create new job opportunities, new economic opportunities um, for all of this country. But we also need them because they are magnets for talent. Um, you know, we, we live in a world where the only truly scarce capital uh, is human capital. Uh, and uh, what research universities do is that they, um, they attract it from around the world, they aggregate it, they concentrate it, and they create new human capital. And ultimately, this is what determines the wealth of nations and regions in, in the kind of economy that we now all, all live in. It's no longer a question of which nation or which region controls um, you know, the most 
physical capital, uh, natural resources. As you know so well, Hank, uh, financial capital moves at the speed of light. It's the ability really to, uh, to invest in and create new ideas, new technologies um, uh, that will, in fact, drive the economy for the future. And I think that's what research universities do. Well said, Larry. So now let me move to sort of the, the big issues of the day. You know, one word that gets overused a lot is unprecedented. You know, because every big problem becomes an unprecedented problem. But, you know, we're dealing with a, a problem today with the pandemic that doesn't have a lot of precedence. You know, you're, it, it's a huge issue, this pandemic. And it, it's gotta be hard to run any institution you know, you know de dealing with, with the pandemic today. But I think particularly difficult to run a big university where you're dealing with the students' uh, demands for a classroom experience that they believe they paid for, but you also have the need to protect the health of the broader university community. The, uh, the, the faculty, the employees, and the students, the visitors. So I'd like to hear each of you talk about how you're threading that needle. And uh, Larry, this time I'm going to begin with you and then we'll go to uh, Raphael. Well, <laughs> Raphael and I have been threading needles together for a long time. Um, as you know, Hank, uh, the two of us were both young faculty members at MIT together and then we worked together when I spent most of my career there. So this is something which we've been doing together uh, for a while. Um, I've been trying to emphasize basically, you know, core values and the core principles um, of the institution as we try to move forward. Uh, one of the things which makes running any college or university challenging is virtually anybody who went to college thinks they can run one. So everybody has an opinion. <laughs> Sounds um, like an investment bank. <laughs> right. um, well, as I like to tell people, uh, at least pre-COVID, uh, I used to spend a lot of time in airplanes. I was under, under no illusion I could land one. Um, but uh, lots of people who have attended our institutions think that uh, they know how they should be run, can be run, um, and they don't hesitate to tell us that. Uh, but, but here I think that in dealing with the challenges of today, you know, I keep telling people we are going to ground our decisions in science, um, we both have access to among the very, very best minds who are looking at these issues. Um, we are going to ground them in concern for public health first, and then we're going to try to um, continue to maintain our core mission, which is educating students and generating new knowledge in service uh, to the world. And, you know, I just keep coming back to those and sort of saying, okay, where does that lead us? How can we do that in a way which protects, you know, the public health and safety of our students, our faculty, our staff, the communities in which we are embedded? We both are urban campuses, so we have to be attentive to what we do and how it affects those who live around us. Um, 
And, um, you know, my general strategy is to make my problems other people's problems. So when they sort of say, well, but you, know, you ought to be doing this, I say, well, let me tell you how it works from, from our perspective. And, you know, if you can look me in the eye and tell me if you were sitting where I'm sitting, you do something else, we've got something to talk about. But if all you're saying is do this because this is what I think is going to be best for my kid or my laboratory, sorry, we can't, you know, we have to take a broader view. Raphael, this out, so you should ask him. <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, hey Raphael. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was wondering wh why Larry was asking you to order and, and to tell us whom to speak. And that's because I always go and try to jump ahead of him, but he's not letting me to. I, I, I think I can say that we know how to run an institution. Uh, we know what to do even with COVID. Let me make that statement. We, thanks to the scientists in the area from Harvard and MIT and the neighborhood, we know what to do. Basically, we need to use face masks. We need to use practice social distancing, and we have to be in well-ventilated areas. It's as simple as that. If we practice those three features, we are going to be okay. The question is, can we and will we? So we start in this fall in, in, in Harvard and Larry made decisions very similar to ours. Uh, uh, we are not bringing everybody back, but we're learning with the people who are gonna be here and some stuff we have here already, how to do that, how to, how to manage the institution so that we can stay reasonably healthy. And if we know how to do this right and we can manage to do it right in the fall, then we'll bring many more students and people in the spring. It's as simple as that. The question is to me is one, science has taught us what to do. The question is, do we have the right behavioral uh, uh, practice uh, to, to, to implement what science is telling us what to do? So that's, that's the difficulty here and, and hopefully we'll figure it out and we'll be in a much better shape in the spring. Well, Rafael, you've really answered my next question because I was going to ask you what do you need to do to open safely, <laughs> and I think you've and I think you've sort of told us, right? Well, I think I think we we to open safely, we need to practice all these things that I said. I think in yeah. the best of the best of worlds, we uh, we ideally would have a, a a cure and would have a therapy and would have a vaccine, but we cannot wait for that to happen without at least giving, giving our best effort to try to practice things the way I'm describing and, and, and time will tell when we can do it well. Yeah. Now, if I can jump in here, Hank, I would just say that science is the process of trial and error. You know, one starts with a hypothesis, you do an experiment, you see how it works, you learn something, you, you adapt the experiment, you ref refine the theory. Um, we're going to learn a lot. We're already learning a lot now as we bring our laboratories back online, as we start to test people. But anybody who says at this point in time that they know precisely what the right thing is to do and they know precisely what's going to happen in the future uh, is not being straight with people. Uh, a huge amount of uncertainty. And one of the things which both of our institutions have done, and we arrived at this interestingly independently, is we've created a process which um, is deliberately structured in ways that give us the opportunity to adapt and change in the face of new information, because we will learn things. Uh, we can't proceed with a plan which assumes we know everything on day one, 
where everything has to work perfectly in order for the plan to work. Okay, so now talking about new information. On top of all the financial and the logistical stresses of the pandemic, and you've had to navigate some sudden and difficult new policy challenges. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you both moved with lightning speed to sue the government when they were moving forward with a new rule that was going to send your, your foreign students home. So you moved very quickly, and I've never seen a better example of a policy intervention being successful because that was followed by a lot of other suits, drew a lot of public attention, and of course the government has now reversed itself and um, the, uh, the rule has been rescinded. But it takes a certain amount of courage to be first. You know, pioneers are the ones that get arrows in their back, right? To, to sue the government. And so you, you move quickly. And so, Larry, I'll go to you first this time. What made you feel so strongly and move so quickly in this case? Well, there were a number of things. Uh, first of all, it, it went to the core of what we are all about, not just as individual institutions, but I think as an industry, if you want to think of higher education as an industry. Um, uh, we exist to educate students and to generate new knowledge. We recruit the best and the brightest from around the world. For many of them, it like just like Raphael described in his own journey from Caracas to Palo Alto, it was a lifelong dream to be able to come study here. And the government moved, in this case, literally without any notice, um, to turn our you know, well-laid plans for educating students in the fall completely upside down. In the process, it put at risk literally hundreds of thousands of foreign students who were enrolled at US institutions. And while it may have appeared as if the ruling only affected those institutions like two of ours that had committed to have the vast bulk of our teaching online, potentially it affected every institution. Because if we found ourselves in a situation as we did back in March, where we had to send students home um, due to the explosion, let's say, of the virus, then every foreign student under the government's ruling was going to have to leave. Uh, this was intolerable. Um, and um, Raphael can speak for himself, but as I looked at this, I said, we just need to do something about it. Um, I'm trained as, as an economist and a lawyer, and I know uh, enough, I'm much more of an economist than I am a lawyer, uh, but I still remember enough about the law to be dangerous. And I thought we had um, a good, we had good legal grounds to challenge this lawsuit, especially in light of the recent Supreme Court decision on DACA. And so um, Raphael and I talked and we agreed that as two institutions, uh, we were going to do this together. Uh, and this was a case where the fact that we were Harvard and MIT, I think, helped make the point that there was much at risk for the nation. There are times in which it's not, a, it's not comfortable being in the public eye, um, but we had the expertise and the resources uh, to be able to launch a challenge on behalf of really all of higher education, which is what we did. 
So, Raphael, anything to add? No, I'm just, uh, I, I, it is a delight that we were able to stop this temporarily. Uh, you know, I, I, let's see what the government does next. Uh, I expect that they'll do something. Uh, but, but I'm delighted that for the time being, uh, many, many, how many hundreds of thousands of international students in the U.S. know that they are welcome here, that academia welcomes here, not just Harvard and MIT, but all American institutions of higher learning. And, and for them to feel supported is, is a good feeling that, that I'm, I'm glad that that much Larry and I and many others have accomplished. I also think it's interesting, Hank, that when we did this, um, it immediately stimulated support, not just from across American higher education, but as you know, from the business community, labor unions, um, U.S. Chamber of Commerce supported us, which is Yeah, it, it was amazing. It was, you know, you were first, and there was a flood of support after you. And so I'm sure there was a good legal case, but the PR, you know, what was nothing like that lawsuit to attract attention. But I want to move now to Raphael with a related question. Because, you know, so we also saw an executive order that would suspend H-1B and other visas. And so, Raphael, what impact will this policy have on your students and universities and how will it affect U.S. competitiveness more broadly? Well, it is really hurting universities big time. Uh, at MIT, I think Harvard is no different. 40% uh, of our graduate students doing research uh, are, are international. So, so if, if we start scaring them and making them feel unwelcome, uh, bringing, bringing the bread of best and brightest to work with each other is, is, is going to be gone. So that's going to hurt research in America big time, at least in American educational institutions. But beyond that, you use the word competitiveness. I think, I think that, is, that is the biggest issue here in my view. Um, we, we, are, we are not the king of the hill anymore when it comes to science and technology. We are still up there, but we used to be completely king, dominated. Uh, just about every segment of science and technology there is, and that's no longer the case. Uh, we have very worthy competitors, and uh, one of them is a country named China that has close to one and a half billion people, and we have a little over 300 million people. So there are four, over four times bigger than we are in population. Um, we need to figure out how to compete with them, and at the end of the day, competition is about talent, it's about people, and uh, we just... If we don't have that kind of population to compete against, then the best we can do is what we have been done successfully for years, which is attract the best and brightest that are motivated uh, to, to actually come to a place like this and be the best and brightest. That's the way we compete better. And, uh, and to me, these kinds of narrative that, that scares uh, international students and make them feel uncomfortable is actually hurting the competitiveness of the country. So, uh, Raphael, I'm going to get, get to you with a follow-up question before going to Larry, because you have written an op-ed that I think brilliantly addresses this. So, and for a long time, I've been a believer, human capital is what differentiates the United States. And so now the question is, how would you reshape 
our immigration policies uh, so that we uh, attract the best and the brightest. What would you do differently if, if, you, if you were king in a democracy? <laughs> Uh, I, I can't even be king at MIT, let alone at the world. I know it. So, so to say this, if you were a professor making a recommendation, but because you've been, you've spoken out on this, and, and I really think that uh, getting our immigration policies right and all the other initiatives that we're going to need, and speak more broadly, what do we need to do to to uh, to be able to have the human capital it's going to take to uh, to compete in this century. Well, the, the good news is that until fairly recently, the best and the brightest wanted, and may, many of them may still do, want to come to America because it's a place that they perceive to be meritocratic. It's a place that they perceive to be where the best and brightest get together and work together uh, and, and, and advance and create the future. So, and, and, and it's an open society and they can speak their minds. Uh, that's the perception America had until just a few years ago. And I think that is what attracts the best and the brightest. So I think we need to go back to making them feel welcome uh, so that they can continue to want to come here. Now, of course, we have to do other things like, like making sure that uh, we still support that kind of research so that they can still want to come and do the best research here. Remember what I said earlier about my comments about having difficulty even understanding uh, somebody speaking to me in the classroom. Nobody likes to live on their own because they want to our home country with the culture unless they're welcome somewhere else and they have better conditions wherever they're going than what they have. So if we offer those better conditions, opportunities to grow, opportunities to do research and to advance the field, that's all we need to do. We had that until recently. I think it's really, uh, uh, um, uh, one, once we manage to attract them, uh, I think it would be great to try to figure out how to keep them. And, and, and we don't have to force them to stay. Clearly, this is not the country that does that. I wish to not push them out. Uh, and if we provide the environment for them to grow here, uh, once they come, they'll stay. And in fact, uh, I think more than 80% of the PhDs from China, they come to America, they actually stay here. So all we have to do is just continue to do what we used to be doing very well, making these best and brightest to feel welcome, giving them the opportunities to work and advance the field, and they will keep coming and they will keep staying if we let them. And I think we should let them. Great. So, uh, Larry, over to you. Uh, let me speak like the economist that I am. There's a false narrative that has emerged, and that is that there's a finite num number of jobs in the United States and that um, immigrants compete with, uh, you know, uh, citizens and current residents for those finite number of jobs and that each one that we admit displaces, quote, an American worker. That's just not true. Um, immigration actually adds to economic growth, um, the opportunity for economic growth in this country. And it does so in a variety of ways. First, there are jobs which, you know, candidly many Americans don't want to do. Um, whether or not we're talking um, about um, farm workers in some cases, or, or seasonal workers, um, home health care workers, uh, there's just a, many, many jobs for which it's difficult to fill uh, domestically. Um, second, 
you know, as Raphael has spoken uh, so eloquently, uh, there's an opportunity to bring people in um, who provide critically needed skills where we can't educate enough people domestically to fill those jobs either. And here it's important to note that if we don't find people to fill those jobs in the U.S., in many cases, the jobs will leave the U.S. It's not as if they will wait around until we find somebody who's, who's capable of filling them here. Um, and because you know, companies have options in terms of where they are located, where they do certain activities. And if they cannot find the, critically, the, the critical technically trained workers um, to do software development, to do laboratory work um, here in the U.S., they'll establish research labs elsewhere. Um, and those jobs will migrate there. So I think we, we need to recognize that um, immigration actually contributes to economic growth in this country. It's not a zero-sum game. Um, and that we should be doing more to um, welcome those people who, as you've observed, uh, Hank, often come here with very, very little expectation than the opportunity that they can achieve a better life for themselves and for their children. Um, Larry, that, that's terrific. Now I'm gonna to go to you to start with this next question because you made the point earlier that the US and China are in a race to develop the technologies, technologies of the future which will underpin uh, economic competitiveness for decades. And here we're talking about things like AI, quantum computing, uh, digital software for communications, 5G. So the question to you, and then I'll go to Raphael, is what is Harvard doing to, uh, to help bolster you know, our competitive position in these areas? So what are you doing? And what do you think the US needs to do are there policies, initiatives, or legislation that you would recommend? So again, this big race to develop the technologies of the future, not just to develop them, but to implement them and to commercialize them. So Larry, over to you. Well, I mean, the most important thing that I think all of our institutions are doing is that we're pushing the boundaries and the frontiers of knowledge in each of these areas. Um, you know, in the area of um, of quantum, um, you know, we, we have the Harvard Quantum Initiative. In fact, we're collaborating with our colleagues at MIT uh, in this area. Uh, in AI, uh, we've become one of the leaders um, in the world in taking a look at the intersection of AI and ethics, AI, um, and how we organize work going forward in the future, um, a whole variety of, of dimensions um, to this. Um, you know, we have the densest concentration of, of talent in the life sciences anywhere in the world, located within a few miles of each of our campuses uh, right now. There's one is hard pressed to identify a major pharmaceutical company which doesn't have a research lab close to, to our places. So I think we are doing a tremendous amount uh, in, in basic research and in educating the next generation of scientists, of engineers, who are gonna push the, the, the frontiers of knowledge. And those people don't just do academic work. Um, our two institutions have documented quite carefully uh, the number 
of patents that are filed by our faculty members and, and related affiliates, the number of companies that are founded by our graduates, by our faculty members. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons why rents are so high in our backyard, um, where so many technology-oriented companies and, and life sciences companies want to be, because they want to be in close proximity um, to, our, uh, to our campuses. And again, this is true not just at Harvard and MIT, I mean, it, I'd like to repeat a, a statement that was made uh, by a, uh, a very, very well-known Harvard faculty member um, about 40 years ago, and maybe 50 years ago. And it was a statement by Pat Moynihan, um, who taught in our government department for years uh, before he went on to serve uh, with distinction in the United States Senate. And, and what Pat used to say, if, if you want to build a great city, all you need to do is to first build a great university and then wait a few hundred years. Uh, and in fact, if you look anywhere in the world, you are hard pressed to find a single major research university where the area around it is not flourishing economically relative to, you know, um, the rest of the, um, of the nation. So I think we're doing a lot. Um, there's more that the government uh, could do. You mentioned quantum. Uh, this administration, to their credit, set aside a billion dollars um, for a national quantum initiative. That's the good news. The bad news is that the Chinese allocated $10 billion uh, for the same purpose. Okay, Raphael. Well, I think, uh, I, I, of course, I agree with everything Larry said. I think I think we have an opportunity to do something to change the way things are going. And the, things are not going great when it comes to U.S. competitiveness. We're losing more than we're gaining. And I think we need to do a lot of things, but at the very least, we need to do three things. One is to really, we have to invest in basic science for advanced technologies. That's a key thing. The, we talk about technologies that are advanced today, like 5G and AI and so forth, but those keep going and there is more to come. So we have to invest in basic science for those new technologies, the ones that we see and the ones that we don't know yet. That's number one. We're not doing that today. And that's part of the reason why we're losing the game. We're not doing that today, not in a big way at all. The second thing we must do is we must incentivize students to go into STEM. We're losing on that one too. We're relying heavily on international students, which is great. But we also need to incentivize domestic students, U.S. students, American students to go into STEM. And the third thing we need to do, and that's another very important component that I don't think is widely appreciated, and it's important that it does ensue, is that we used to be the best country in the world in terms of moving ideas from the lab to impact, to the market. We used to be the fastest at it. We are no longer the fastest. We have a tough competitor who can do it even faster. We need to understand what they are doing, and we're not telling what you need to do to move things much faster than theirs. Because even if we do advanced technology here, if other countries can move them faster, we still lose the game. So those are three necessary, far from sufficient components the country needs to do. Yeah, and I, Rafael, you and I have talked a lot about the last one. Because even if we're ahead with the technology, if another country commercializes it quicker, then they set the standards and it's, uh, it, it's at a huge cost to the U.S. 
Now, so I would now like to move to another area where you both have given a lot of thought. You know, there's a great deal of concern coming out of Washington, D.C., Congress, the administration, law enforcement to a big extent about the need to protect our intellectual property and our research. And, you know, here you're hearing particularly from the law enforcement, rather than looking at the foreign students and researchers as a plus, they're increasingly looking at them as a vulnerability, as a, a, a major problem. And so the question for you, Raphael, and I'm going to start with you and then go to Larry, but the question for you is, how do you do what you both have emphasized, continue to attract the best and the brightest from around the world to do cutting edge research so we're on top of the research? And how do you do that while also protecting our national security and our economic security? Well, there are two quick comments that I'd like to make. Uh, that's a very important question, and this, this is everybody's minds, and each time we think about the importance, so we talk about the importance of international students, nothing comes back. Uh, and the and expectation is there is a huge risk because there are potential spies. Let me make two quick statements on that. Number one, to the best of my knowledge, there have been very few cases of this kind of IP theft of espionage involving students. There are very few cases of that. So, so let's establish that as a fact. Uh, number two, that does not, um, that does not uh, uh, excuse us for being careful with who we engage with in, in academia. Uh, every, every academic institution does a very good job at it, does it differently. The way we do it is we have a senior risk group. Basically, every engagement that we have with countries that <clears throat> are in, have some degree of concern. And right now in our little list, there is China, there is Russia, there is Saudi Arabia for different reasons. But countries that offer concerns for economic issues or for security reasons or for human rights violation issues, every engagement is thoroughly vetted by that group before we engage. And that's a way to make sure that at least the institution is engaging in the right kind of projects in which there is value added for us and for them and no risk to economy, our economy, our security, or our values. But, 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 but that's important that we do from the point of view of the whole institution. But I would like to emphasize that, that the potential accusation that every possible grad student from a particular nation is a potential spy is an exaggeration. There are very few cases of students involved in this kind of behavior. Yeah, and I think most of the focus has been primarily on professors and, and researchers, but I've got that. So, so Larry, what do you have to add? Well, first, I, I agree with everything that Raphael just said, and I, I would note, though, that, you know, we need to, and, and we are working in collaboration with the government on these issues. It's important to know that the government has resources that institutions like ours lack when it comes to identifying those who may be um, putting sensitive material at risk. Um, the government has the capacity uh, to vet people in ways that we do, has the capacity to put people under oath, which we don't. Uh, it, it knows 
about certain relationships that we can never help to know about just because of its uh, the resources that the government has uh, through the FBI and, and, and others. So it's imperative to work collaboratively um, with the government. That said, it's also the case that it's in our own self-interest to protect our intellectual property. So it would be a mistake to suggest that we are indifferent to this. Um, we aren't. Um, but it's also true that we are open institutions and that the research that's done on our campus is published. Um, it's in our interest to speed it out there to, to, as Raphael said, to make efforts to speed the knowledge that's generated um, in our laboratories into the marketplace. Um, once that research is published, it can also be stolen um, in various ways. It may be patented, but that does not necessarily mean that others will respect um, our efforts to preserve and protect our intellectual, um, our intellectual property. To the extent that there are technologies that are truly sensitive from a national security standpoint, um, research of that nature perhaps should not happen on our campuses. And you know, um, this is why we have national laboratories. Um, and there are other places where the government could designate certain areas of research and support that research and move it there. Um, so I think that we need to be active partners with the government in trying to ensure that um, people do not use opportunities to work at our institutions. But as Raphael says, there are actually very, very few examples of this. There have been some, some on our own campuses, I will admit, um, but even those were identified um, only because the government had subpoena power and had access to information that we did not. I think that's a uh, very comprehensive answer. And I'd like to move to a, you know, even bigger picture issue. You know, the, pan the pandemic was very predictable, but yet it, it exposed big failures and vulnerabilities in almost every country and, and, and globally. And, you know, we, we can look at something today like uh, climate change, which is also, it's, it's very predictable that uh, climate change is, is going to threaten our economic security, our national security, political stability, the health of the planet. So it's another big risk. And yet today, we're increasingly seeing science politicized. You know, it's, you know we're, we're seeing climate science politicized. We've seen some of the science around the pandemic uh, politicized. And as I look for, for a silver lining in all of this, one of the things that I'm hoping is that coming out of the pandemic, people will have a greater, the public will have a greater respect for experts and for science. And for instance, with climate change, rather than debating the science or debating the facts, we'll debate the policy response. But I would be interested in hearing what, uh, what each of you uh, think about this. And uh, Raphael, why don't I go to you and first and, and, and then to uh, Larry. This, thank you, Hank. It is really very sad that something so important is being politicized. Uh, to me, politicizing climate change is the same thing as politicizing face masks. 
I mean, you know, science tells you that you should wear face masks to protect yourself from the virus. Science is also telling you climate change is happening and a catastrophe is in the making in a couple of decades or more, perhaps not much more than that, unless we do something about it. And we are ignoring science, just as we are ignoring face masks. So that's a very serious issue. I, I, think, I, I think we need to have leadership who is receptive to understanding science at all levels of society, not just in, in the government, not just at the state level or the federal level, even in companies. We need to have leaders who understand the importance of the, the huge risk that we're putting the planet on. Uh, but very specifically, I think there are three things the country has to agree to do if we recognize one of these days, finally, that climate change is for real and it's going to happen. It's happening and it's gonna, the, the severity of it is going to occur. There are many people who say we need policy incentives to, in, to in, uh, incentivize the right behavior. And I fully agree with that. Uh, there are many people who say that we do not need, we have all the technology we need, we don't have to develop any new technology. I strongly disagree with that. And some very, very well-known individuals are making that statement. And that statement, I'm telling you, as the spokesman of person of MIT, is absolutely wrong. We do not have all the technology we need. So number one, we do need the policy incentives for the right behavior in individuals and in companies. And we do need the right policy incentives so that companies can take full advantage of existing technologies that we know, renewables, and lower the price of the, of the use of the renewables. But if we don't develop new advanced technologies, we won't be able to save ourselves from climate change. And we need to address the mitigation in a big way, and we need additional technology for that. And quite frankly, right now, we have to also start investing heavily on adaptation, because I don't see us getting to full mitigation at this point. It's almost too late. So we have to invest in new technologies for mitigation and for adaptation. So I see those three elements, policy incentives, companies incentivized to use existing technologies and funding to develop new technologies. And the only in entity that can encourage the latter is the federal government, and they are not doing that. And, and you have, you're doing some terrific work. You've got some really good thinkers at MIT in this area. As I look at people like David Keith and the work on, you know, geoengineering and open air climate, uh, excuse me, carbon capture and, and, and so on. So, Larry, uh, what, what do you have to add here? I have to note, David Keith is a Harvard faculty member, not an MIT faculty. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for mentioning I, him. You, you, guys neighborhood. So you, guys, you guys do so much together. Hey, it's a neighborhood. It's perfectly all right. It's in the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, let me just speak, speak to the broader issue of politicizing science. Um, you know, this is unbelievably dangerous. Um, it's dangerous for the nation, it's dangerous for the world, and it's dangerous for individuals. We don't politicize science when somebody is diagnosed with a brain tumor um, and needs surgery. Um, people want, you know, the best expertise that's available to them. They want the most accurate diagnostic tests that are available to them. They want to know and understand what are the available treatment options and they're not looking at the data on what's effective treatment or what's not through a highly polarized political filter. Um, I, I've never heard of anybody doing that. And 
If we're not going to do that when we seek individual treatment, when we are facing individual challenges to our own personal health, why should we be doing that when we are facing similar challenges uh, to public health? Why should we do it when we are facing similar challenges that pose to the planet writ large? Uh, this is extremely, extremely dangerous. I think people are, who, who are doing so are doing so for narrow political reasons um, and are um, engaging in activity which ultimately can serve to undermine sort of faith and confidence that people have in the ability of the nation to respond and to function. Um, just, you know, one of the things which both of our institutions did is we played a central role in organizing the scientific effort of this country during World War II. Um, and that's something which both Harvard and MIT can be enormously proud of. Um, one of my predecessors um, was responsible for organizing um, much of the scientific effort and uh, Vannevar Bush um, took that and, and created a blueprint uh, which we still are following uh, today, which helped to create the National Science Foundation um, uh, and everything that, that followed from that. Um, I shudder to think how World War II would have ended um, if we had politicized the science that allowed us to develop and perfect radar, um, the science that ultimately led um, uh, to the Manhattan Project, uh, the science that allowed us to develop algorithms for properly managing logistics um, during, uh, during World War II. This nation needs to respect science, needs to be willing to embrace it, and needs to be willing uh, to look to science to help us chart the right pathway forward. That's not to say that science is perfect, it's not. It's not to say that scientists or any academics are without their own biases, they are, but the scientific method is error corrected uh, because we publish, because people need to replicate things and we should look to that and, and not those who are unschooled in, uh, in these disciplines to pronounce on what's appropriate and, and what's not. Amen, but now I want to end this on a high note. So both of you are dedicating your lives to educating and motivating young people. That's a big part of what your universities are about. And right now, what can we say to the young people who are missing out on you know, school and job prospects, other critical opportunities at this point in time? So their, their lives have been disrupted how do you give them perspective? And what do you tell young people to give them hope for the future? So how do we, what, what can we leave this interview with for young people? So Larry, we'll go to you first here. Well, you know, what I would tell them is that each generation um, faces challenges. And, you know, if you look back in time, Prior students who studied on our campuses have faced challenges that were posed by World War II when we accelerated um, the education of our students. We, you know, we, we taught students 12 months out of the year. Um, 
we increased the number of students on our campuses, we graduated them in two and a half years in some cases, and then they marched off to war. Um, and that was true not just during World War II, it was true during World War I. In the case of Harvard, it was true you know, in the Civil War, um, one can go back and find many, many examples of each generation being challenged. And, and, you know, I would say to our students that this is your challenge and it's your opportunity to make the most of this and your opportunity to figure out how you will use the gifts that you have been given. And, um, and they have been given many to try and help make the world a better place, that this is a chance for each and every one of them to think about what are they going to do, not just to sit back and sort of complain about what they've been denied. Um, you know, and, and they have suffered, and we need to recognize that. I don't mean to diminish their loss. It is real, and they are feeling it. But at the same time, they have a chance to shape their own future and figure out how they are going to make the best of this. And we want to work with them in doing that. Raphael. Very well said, Larry. Uh let me see if I can if I can add to that at all. I think uh, I think students, the young, particularly students, are going through a tough time. This is a, a major transition in society that we're all living. Uh, and and I think what what I would ask all of us to do, particularly the young people that will inherit the society that we're transforming right now, is to figure out instead of the normal tendency. Uh, to say is why is it happening to me is to see whether we can take advantage and recognize the historic moment we're living right now. Uh, we had a society that by many measures uh, for many people was somewhat unstable and becoming more unstable due to income inequality and due to racial injustice and so forth and COVID happens and George Floyd killing happened. And that is triggering a major transition from the past to the future. And we're going through that right now. Uh, it's not clear what the future is going to be, but it's not going to be exactly like the past. All of us are now in that transition, and we should figure out a way how to help that transition land in a much better place. So what I can tell students right now is it is hard. I haven't left this house that I'm, you're, that I'm talking to you from uh, more just for a few walks for the last four months. I don't enjoy that. It is hard. But, you know, let's adapt to that transitional reality. Let's adapt to that. Let's become more resilient. <laughs> the more we adapt to that, the more we realize the historic moment we're living, the more we're going to be prepared for that better future that we're going to be enable ourselves. So hang in there. Learn to adapt is going to help us for the better future. Well said. You know, I tell people this is a young person's world. The challenges are great. The complexity is great. There's so many interesting problems to be solved. And they're going to have an opportunity to solve them. It's, it, it's a difficult world, but it's an interesting world. It's a complex world. And they can help build a future. And thank you to both of you uh, gentlemen for what you're doing for young people and for the United States of America. So thank you very much for participating in this interview today. Our pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having us. Hank, the next time I think we should have Larry and I asking you questions, Hank. Yeah. <laughs>